One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. An Erio's Original each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Michael Bustamante. He is a historian of the Cuban Revolution and assistant professor of history at Florida International University. And let's hear what he has to say about the death of Che Guevara. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to join you. So uh, we're talking about Che and uh, really his life and his death. And I, I was wondering if we could start off by getting a brief overview of Che's childhood and his upbringing in Argentina. Yeah, I mean, he's born in 1928, um, grows up in a fairly well-to-do family um, by many accounts, um, grows up in a family surrounded by books, culture, education, Um and really, it's it's my sense that is it's in his university years where he begins to you know famously he takes a year off at one point for university he's studying to become a physician um, but takes a year off to ride around uh, a good portion of uh, South America on a motorcycle which later became a movie um, but it's it's that experience that I think um, opens his eyes to a lot of social injustices that, um, were present in Latin America at the time and, and echoes of which are still there today. And so whatever you think of Che, um, later, um, certainly the experiences that he had as a young man, um, I think shaped his kind of consciousness about social and economic problems in in the continent. Yeah. And he, so he gets to Guatemala in 1953, and what is this political situation uh, at the time in Guatemala, and how does he get involved? He arrives in Guatemala kind of 
at, at the tail end, having traveled most of South America, he ends up finishing his medical degree at one point, but then he continues to travel and, and ends up further north. And he ends up in Guatemala at a really important time in that country's history um, where a reformist um, kind of self-designated revolutionary president, um, Jacob Arbenz, who had been elected, um, is in power. Um, and he's um, attempting you know, having been elected by the ballot box in a transparent election that is validated internationally to carry out really broad-based um, reforms, uh, among which are land reform. Um, that is taking land away from a small group of people who had an insane amount of it and trying to redistribute it um, in small private property. Um, this was a, a effort that was seen as radical, communistic um, in, you know, Washington certainly at the time. Um, even if the Guatemalan authorities didn't define it in that way. Um, so he's in the, he's, he's there in the midst of all that happening. And he's also there in 1954 when, uh, Arbenz is overthrown by a coup that's orchestrated by the CIA. Um, that's not conspiracy theory. That's just fact. Um, you know, the documents are there to prove it. Um, and so he witnesses all of that and, and having seen the U S role, which was in theory covert, but also pretty obvious, um, that, that also shapes in the long term his view of the United States, which is going to obviously uh, come to bear later when he shows up in Cuba. So he then meets Fidel Castro and his brother Raul in Mexico City. And this is uh, 1955. What has brought these two people together in Mexico City and why do they meet? Why are they there? Yeah, it's a pretty fortuitous, I guess, set of circumstances. Um, so on the one hand, Che is sort of run out of Guatemala uh, on the heels of the coup against Arbenz, um, along with others that had been sympathizers of that government. Um, and at the same time, you know, two years later in 1952, um, a guy by the name of Fulgencio Batista, who had been Cuba's president one time before during the late 30s and then in the early 40s, um, he's running for office again in 52. He's losing in the polls and decides, I don't really like the way things are going, so I'm going to stage a coup and put myself back in power. And he does that with relative ease. And that... Um, sends uh, that that galvanizes a whole sort of uh, opposition movement against Batista in which Fidel Castro is involved. Fidel Castro in 1953 has tried to launch an attack that would lead to the overthrow of, of Batista. It fails miserably. Fidel and his brother Raul are thrown in jail for a while. They get let out, um, kind of the biggest mistake Batista ever made probably. And they then go into exile in Mexico. And so Che has arrived in Mexico City having come from Guatemala my sense is that in Guatemala, he had also met some early Cuban exiles of the Batista government. And so he had some sense of what was going on in Cuba um, and, it, and is eventually connected with the, with the Castro brothers and develops a, a deep uh, partnership. And what is that relationship like between the two of them? Maybe it, also if you could describe their differences. I mean, in, in a way, it's hard to say because I think there's so many. Um, it's a relationship that in many respects is kind of shrouded in mystery. It's not as if the Cuban government today has released a, a whole lot of documents, you know, shining light on the intricacies of that relationship. There's a lot of conspiracy theories about, you know, whether later on Fidel Castro sees Che as a sort of a rival or not. Um, I don't necessarily put much purchase into that. But, you know, Che, I, I think in a way that they're very similar. I mean, they're both sort of idealists um, in, in, in the biggest sense. Um, and some would say to a kind of almost stupid degree, right? Um, you know, Fidel Castro had tried to overthrow Batista by, you know, going after military barracks with, you know, a little bit over a hundred guys. It was a disaster. And yet he still thinks that he can you know, basically from nothing build a revolution. 
Um, and I think Che Guevara, for whatever reason, is like, I'm on board, right? Um, so they're, they're, they see eye to eye in that, in that sense. Um, you know, I, I think later on, I mean, it, maybe it has more bearing later, but there's a lot of a conversation about sort of the different ways that each thought the Cuban revolution should go and the way that Fidel Castro kind of positions himself in the early 60s versus Che. Che is certainly somebody who, um, by all accounts, is a, a sort of a self-identified Marxist very early on. Um, Fidel Castro, less so. And yet they, they you know, share enough in common to, um, you know, develop this partnership. So they land in Cuba, right? They, they finally, uh, Castro gets his yacht, the grandma, and they land in Cuba, and only 19 of the, the soldiers that actually came with them are either, you know, s- survive or are not captured. What role does Che play in um, just kind of rebuilding this army with Castro? Yeah, he's, he's crucial. Um, you know, it's interesting, the number of people that survived the landing of the ship Granma that takes these guys from Mexico, where they had been training and conspiring to conspiring to come back to Cuba. And literally, by the way, it's worth mentioning um, that boat is named after somebody's grandma, right? Like (laughs) that's where the name comes from, which now is the name of it. Isn't it also spelled incorrectly? It's like G-R-A-N-M-A. Yeah, but it's like, it's like, um, I don't know, someone who speaks Spanish trying to pronounce like grandma, you know, like grandma, la grandma, grandma, right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, when they land um, in Cuba, it's another sort of unmitigated disaster. Most of the people that they come with are lost. Um, a very small amount survive. Um, the Cuban government for a long time claimed that only 12 has survived, sort of like the 12 apostles. Um, but, you know, other historians have said it's more like 1718, as you said. You know, Che is crucial. I mean, he is in many respects the right-hand man. At, at first, um, you know, he's not particularly high-ranking in the sort of... Um, hierarchy of, of Fidel Castro's movement, the 26th of July movement, as it was called. But over time, he really um, and fairly quickly develops uh, quite a close relationship with, with Fidel and the other leaders. And in, in time, once the guerrilla um, sort of unit is built up again, and, you know, it's never for a long, long time, it's not more than a couple hundred guys. It's a pretty nimble operation. He's eventually um, promoted to the rank of comandante, which is the sort of highest rank in their, um, their group. And when the guerrillas have enough kind of momentum to sort of expand their military operations into various fronts, um, Che Guevara takes the command of one of those fronts. Um, and so he really rises to a position of, of, of military leadership, um, for sure. And so it's during this time that, you know, in reading about him, it really seems to me that he develops this detachment um, to violence. And how, how is he as one of these leaders? You know, again, the accounts really vary. I mean, it's difficult to imagine, um, you know, other than Fidel Castro himself, maybe, but a, a political figure in Cuba who is more polarizing than Che Guevara. Um, you know, for some people, he is the heroic guerrilla um, and who will point to his, you know, I think if you read them on their own, very interesting, inter- introspective sort of writings about social injustice and about also, um, you know, his theorizing about the necessity for revolutionary violence, right. Um, as something that's inevitable to push for the kind of social change that he's imagining. And one can read those and be in a sense, very enamored of it. And I don't come at those texts with any kind of illusions that violence, political violence is not part of the equation for many other political processes in the world. Right. Um, you know, we fought a revolution in the United States too, to gain our independence. Um, but on the other hand, there are, you know, credible accounts that he was 
along with other revolutionary leaders, sort of um, implacable when it came to not only loyalty within the ranks, but sort of discipline, right? And so if people were caught kind of, um, you know, sneaking an extra bit of rations um, uh, and not sort of thinking of the others before themselves, that was something that Che Guevara, I think, um, by all accounts, did not look kindly upon, um, nor did he look kindly upon, you know, people who proved to be infiltrators in their ranks or local peasants with whom they had relations that ended up, you know, informing uh, on their presence to the military authorities of Batista's government that were after them. So, yeah, there are, are credible accounts of Batista having um, participated in ordered um, executions um, in the Sierra Maestra. Um, just as there, just as after the revolution wins, um, he has a role in military tribunals that are set up right after to sort of punish people that had per- per- uh, perpetrated a lot of acts of violence on the other side of the Cuban conflict. Um, so I don't know if I'd call it detachment from violence per se, um, but certainly he was not somebody who shied away from uh, a recognition that violence is a part of revolutionary struggle. And some people see in that an indictment and others, um, you know, admire it to, to, to this day. And can you talk to us more about this time period after Castro takes power? What is Che's role and how is he perceived by the Cuban people during this time? He has many, many positions in the Cuban government that takes power or is set up after the Batista actually falls. Um, he, for a while, is very um, closely involved in the Cuban government's own efforts to do their own agrarian reform, which was a major sort of push in the first year that they were in power. He's named head of the central bank at one point, even though he doesn't have a background in economics, which is kind of insane. He also sort of very early on becomes kind of one of the sort of revolution's um, high diplomats, and he's traveling around the world to different places and establishing ties. Um, and, and so he has multiple positions sometimes that even at the same time. And as I said, um, you know, early on, he's in charge of um, uh, a prison, um, La Cabana prison, which is across from the main part of Old Havana, where those who were suspected of having perpetrated acts of violence and injustice under the Batista government are, are tried and often executed in the early days of 1959. Um, in circumstances that many have criticized, criticized for lacking um, kind of due process that we might hope for um, in a kind of a court setting, but that one has to recognize the vast majority of Cuban people at the time were fully on board with what was happening, right? If you go to the press at the time, which has not yet been nationalized, right, there's still a plural press in Cuba. Nobody is questioning that anybody innocent is tried and executed, which I think is, is a humbling right. kind of a thing. The fervor of this moment, um, and this is something that I think we forget, pretty much everybody in Cuba, um, and that's not much of an exaggeration, is, is on board um, with the revolution at the start. The problem is that there are a lot of different visions of what this revolution is going to be. And, and people who have a kind of more, yeah, we need to change, Batista's bad, there's a lot of injustice, we want to fix that, but let's go slow, let's work within the framework of traditional democratic institutions. They start to look at figures like Guevara as too radical, Suspicions pretty pop up pretty early that he's um, sort of a Marxist kind of in this cabal, even as the Cuban government is denying that its orientation is Marxist. And even as I, I don't think it was really in a decided way at that time. So, um, you know, again, very early on, people start to form very different opinions about him. And for those who are suspicious of the Cuban revolution from very early on, he's somebody that attracts their, their attention and their concern. So eventually Che wants to leave Cuba to pursue other revolutions. Does he just get the green light uh, from Castro? Yeah. And he's like, 
see a piece. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what is this time period like? Because I think, you know, where I'm getting to is that it eventually leads to him going to Bolivia. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of different accounts as to sort of what prompts Che Guevara to kind of hang up his, his he doesn't hang up his boots, that's the wrong phrase, but to, to sort of leave the Cuba thing in the, in the past and kind of focus his attention primarily on, on international affairs, on, on spreading the revolution, um, capital T, capital R, abroad, um, not only in Latin America, but also on the African continent. And, you know, one of the things that I think people have long speculated about, and I don't have a perfect answer, is that, you know, Guevara was somebody who, as radical as he was, as, as, as Marxist as he was, he was also pretty suspicious of the Soviet Union, right? He saw the Soviet Union as kind of, um, and he wasn't alone in this regard, uh, seeing the Soviets as kind of more stodgy, more um, sort of caught in their old ways. The Soviets were more conservative with on matters of international relations. They were much more hesitant to back Cuba wanting to spread revolution abroad um, and, and, and told the Cuban government so. And so the period of the 60s is actually this period of a lot of ups and downs in the Cuba-Soviet relationship, even as Cuba turns to the Soviet Union for economic support when it's cut off from the United States, right? And um, it's no secret that I think some people in Soviet circles see Guevara as a kind of um, a bete noir that, that, that makes their dealings with Cuba difficult or complicated, um, and I think from that, there has emerged a lot of speculation that, well, you know, Guevara was kind of not, not run out of town, but, but as the Soviet relationship be- became crucial for, cu- for Cuba's economic survival, that maybe Guevara's um, political stature sort of, sort of declined. Um, others, however, would say that there's really not definitive evidence of that, that this is also, that this is more the story of a guy who, having accomplished what he wanted to accomplish and having, though he was named an honorary Cuban citizen, was not Cuban himself and really, you know, wanted to tackle injustice on a broader scale, um, that this was something that was perhaps always in his DNA. Um, and then he had a, a loyal supporter in the Cuban government and Fidel Castro when he, when he went to do it. Um, but the point is, um, in, in, uh, 19, uh, early 1965, I believe he sort of drops off the map and, and, and his whereabouts are sort of unknown, um, in public, and it turns out that he's, um, you know, trying to spread revolution first um, in the Congo, um, and and then after that fails, he he eventually ends up in Bolivia in 1966. And what is his experience like in Bolivia? How how does he fight, you know, or how is he accepted into the Bolivian rebel cause? By some accounts, not very well. Um, he landed there with a group of other Cuban supporters and they had local Bolivian supporters with the idea that they're going to try to replicate basically what the 26th of July movement had done in Cuba, sort of a small guerrilla sort of focus or, or focal, which was sort of Che's theory of guerrilla warfare and that they would sort of build and amass support. And eventually, you know, um, they would build such a mass that, that, you know, things would kind of take their course and, and the existing government would fall. Um, it didn't happen um, by by all stretches, by all accounts. The effort in Bolivia was really a failure. They struggled for a really, really long time. Um, supply lines were very short. I mean, one of the things that has become clear in time is that the 26th of July movement in Cuba could not have survived in, in the mountains without supply lines from a very deep bench of resistance supporters in urban settings, right? And they were, in fact, maybe just as, if not a little bit more important for the, the long-term success of that cause. 
And in Bolivia, they're, they're never able to replicate the same kind of enduring network. And so they suffer the consequences of that. Um, and by this point, there's also um, an, an international manhunt that's, that's out for, for, for Guevara. Add to that, the, the local communist party in Bolivia is more sort of a pro-Moscow political party, mean, meaning they're more suspicious about whether the conditions are ripe to sort of launch a revolution in this way. And so there's good enough evidence that the Bolivian Communist Party was not um, particularly supportive of Guevara's efforts. Um, there's a lot of controversy as to whether the Bolivian Communist Party ended up ratting him out uh. um, or not. There's a fierce debate. They're still ongoing. Uh, but suffice it to say, the, the network was, was very weak, and eventually they were surrounded on all sides by Bolivian special forces um, that uh, were being supported by the CIA. Why is the CIA so interested in capturing Che at this moment? Maybe my cynical answer is that the CIA had failed so miserably to this point to overthrow Fidel. And Lord knows they had tried. The largest CIA station in the world outside of Langley was in Miami in the 1960s. Uh, Lord knows how much money was spent in all kinds of operations, not just the Bay of Pigs, but you know, um, all the stuff that you hear about that sounds like comedy, but is in fact true, exploding cigars, poison wetsuits, yada, yada. So I think something about the kind of international manhunt for, for Guevara is, is like, you know, we can get a win if we can track down this guy, you know, a, a Pyrrhic victory, perhaps, because yes. Fidel Castro is still going to remain in power. But I think that drives some of it. And of course, um, there's, it's also personal for some of the people that are involved. Um, there's a guy who's still around Miami today, Felix Rodriguez, who's a CIA agent, um, had been involved in sort of CIA-sponsored anti-Castro efforts in the 60s that were all a failure. And he becomes an advisor for the Bolivian Special Forces in, in their campaign. And so for him, you know, this has long been the feather in his cap um, that he's made, I think, a career out of in some respects. So I think it's that. And I think, I think you know, national, um, national strategists or, or national security strategists in the U.S. are worried about Guevara's example. I mean, it would only be, uh, I think, in part because of his, it, it's interesting, like his martyrdom also sort of backfires because he becomes a martyr in the eyes of so many. And this sort of fuels a new cycle of kind of mobilization. But it also has to be said that the death of Guevara is also the death for a time of the dream of kind of guerrilla struggle um, in Latin America. And it's no mistake that the Cuban government, after that point for a while, turns its attention away from trying to make this happen in Latin America. They had also tried in Argentina earlier on and failed. And they turn their attention to the African continent where they're going to end up having much more success. I'm trying to understand why the Bolivians were then so dead set on Che's execution. I mean, I think it was to prove a point that the, the, the ideal that this guy stood for is, is, is dead. I mean, one, one, it's an interesting sort of morbid choice, right? Do you keep somebody alive like that and in prison or something? Um, and then because they're alive, they become a sort of a, a rallying point, right? <laughs> or do you execute them and then martyr them and they become a rallying point in a, in a different way? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think I think the sense was that this was somebody who had, you know, was trying to subvert the order of the established Bolivian state. And so there was, um, which is a very right-leaning government at the time, um, guilty of a lot of things on its own. So I think, I think there was just a sense of probably wanting to kind of um, try to nip this in the bud and prove that, that this is in fact dead, that not only the man is dead, but the ideals for which he stands are dead. And of course, you know, that wouldn't happen, um, you know, where he... His his it's interesting. Like his burial site is long a secret, um, and so the sort of quest to find his remains becomes another 
rallying point, if you will, around Guevara's image and memory um, for those who see him as a hero. Um, and that continues today. Right. It's almost like the stifling of, of making him an icon only made him a bigger icon. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and it's no mistake that that famous image of, of Guevara that we see everywhere, um, perhaps the most widely circulated image ever, um, which was taken in 1960, um, taken by a photographer who was kind of one of the sort of, of quasi-official photographers of the Cuban revolutionary leadership, but whose background was in fashion photography in the 1950s. Oh. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of stylization of not only that image of Guevara, but other images of revolutionary leaders is not an accident. It's very interesting. And so, and so after his death, that image begins to sort of circulate, not directly because of the Cuban government trying to make it happen. It circulates organically um, uh, in student protests in 1968 in Europe and, and in the U.S., and so, yeah, um, he became, I think, much more of a, an icon in death than maybe he would have been in life. But who knows? Um, you know, uh, that's a counterfactual. And as a historian, counterfactuals are always, um, always tricky territory. So, OK, if you had to pick one person or thing, ultimately, who do you think is to blame for the death of Che Guevara? <laughs> <laughs> Can I pass that? Because, because I, I don't know. Like, I'll tell you uh, what. What, the, what we came up with is insane. So, well, t- tell me. I, I, well, I, I want to hear you first, and then I'm going to tell you what we ended up sending to jail, so that you can tell me how wrong we are. Okay. Um, huh. I just because it's an easy answer. Um, even if I don't entirely believe it, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say the Bolivian Communist Party, I guess, um, because I think I think, you know, had had the networks of support been stronger among the left in Bolivia for what he was trying to do, um, his death might still have happened, but it might have happened later. And, and they were they, he was he and, and his column were in Bolivia were really on their own, like in, in a huge, huge way. So I think they they definitely have some some guilt on their shoulders to such a degree that um, it is a it, and this is really morbid, but it's a fascinating detail of the story. After Guevara is, is executed, forgive this rant, his hands are cut off, and his hands are cut off to do fingerprints to then prove his identity because Guevara dead. He doesn't look like the man in life. He's skinny as, as all hell. Um, but a guy in the Bolivian military that feels guilty about this who has kind of left-leaning inclinations of himself, sort of ferrets away the hands in formaldehyde and passes them to a member of the, of the Bolivian Communist Party who eventually travels, if I'm getting this right, to some, somewhere in Eastern Europe, I forget where, and they eventually make their way back to Cuba. Um, so I think that I'm going to use that as evidence that uh, people in the Bolivian Communist Party felt, felt guilty for their role in this, that they were so, so willing to go to such far lengths to try to get his decapitated hands back to Havana. So if that's not crazier than what you came up with, um, you know, (laughs) so the hands, you would essentially put the hands in, in jail, the, the jar of hands. No, not the jar of hands. I I, I would put the, the, the leadership of the Bolivian leadership of the Bolivian communist party, including the guy. Um, and I'm forgetting who exactly he was, who, who got the, got the hands back to to Cuba (laughs) for safekeeping. Well, we ended up, you know, we, we ended up sending uh, Che merch 
to to jail. That's and, that's good. That's uh, good. <laughs> Yeah. Our thinking was there, you know, there, there does, it's the separation of the ideology, which, and also the, the actual, the actualization of how that played out and yeah. le- led to his own demise, kind of. I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, the merch, the merch doesn't exist until after the death, right? So, so that's like some back to the future kind of stuff. Yes. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the merch is very weird. And, 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 um, you know, in the nineties, when Cuba becomes a signatory of international copyright laws for the first time, the estate of the photographer who had taken the famous image would start suing, um, certain commercial entities, uh, in Europe that were using the image in ways that they did not deem sort of consistent with Che's values. Um, so there's a, there's an interesting story about kind of policing the copyright, um, of the image of Che Guevara that, um, is an oddly capitalist thing to do for an icon of right, yeah, yeah. Although you know, their 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 aim is to use the tools of capitalism to to get at um, like I think there's one case of a vodka maker or something, uh, you know, a, another capitalist company that's banking on this image and and the photographer once once royalties were awarded, I think famously donated his um, or the estate donated the earnings to the Cuban healthcare system. So I, oh. I guess they were considered well. Mike, thank you so, so much for talking to me as, you know, a Cuban American who grew up in Miami. You know, I I think that there's so much mystery, at least in our households where it's like, don't talk, don't you dare say his name, (laughs) you know, Uh, that for me, this has been a a really eye opening process. And I'm so grateful that you could come on and talk to us about it. Happy to do so. Hope it was uh, enlightening in some, in some way. (laughs) Yes, it was, (laughs) especially the hands. We'll never forget. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. With us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? Good, good. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. Good, good. <laughs> now, <laughs> uh, how about, uh, I, I felt like I just went to uh, a Cuban history class with with Mike. Oh, yeah. It was wonderful. That was so fascinating. And he, I mean, I was just thinking the whole time, I was kind of like, what must it be like to know so much about something? <laughs> I feel I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I doing these alarmist episodes. I'm learning like a little bit about a lot of stuff, um, but but um, it's more than I used to know, at least. But yeah, I don't. Just the depth of his knowledge on, about that time in history was. I mean, it's very impressive. Yeah, and he, you know, he has a whole understanding of you know latin american and south american history like we were just asking this one random you know, thing hey talk to us about che Guevara, and he's like okay here you go <laughs> like wow yeah 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 totally it made me want to go back to school for sure <laughs> um no not just for the, like the um cafeteria and stuff like that, right that they not give you just for the cookies for the food courts mm. but for the education too the food court did you have what like a wetzel pretzel <laughs> no well we did have a uh in my first dorm we had a pizza hut uh, to go oh you're and talking so about you in just... college yeah in college we had a jamba juice Ooh. yeah yeah Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But what do you guys think? Do you think that, you know, he ended up putting it all on the Bolivian government, which I understood, I I understand why It, it, it really was the Bolivian government. They ordered the execution. And what I think was interesting about what he said was really it was the lack of, uh, how do you say like like, unity uh, or unity? Yeah. The lack of unity um, within the government at that time and the the his forces or the, the side that he was fighting for, like not having the actual power or um, not power, but uh, like the resources, resources. Yeah, resources. Yeah. And they weren't all sort of even the the people that were fighting with Che, like they weren't. It sounds like what he was saying was they weren't this like unified force that in a way, that's part of the reason why it played out the way it did. Also, on um, the side of the government, that they weren't 100% unified because of the story he told about the hands. And that also was similar to what we talked about Felix, the CIA agent, taking the Rolex, that even people who were responsible in some ways for Che's death were also fans. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's real was really interesting. And also the the fact that his um remains people still don't know where they are. Yeah, the, I mean, he's such a complicated and divisive figure yeah. in history. It's it's even his bones are hard to even his bones are hard to pin down. Where are they? I, they could be anywhere. Where do they stand? Where are his hands? <laughs> where are those hands? <laughs> I think they're in a jar. I tried to see if he he would send the send the hands to jail, and he did not have. That. I know. I you you really you we wanted that. That was visual. for you, Amanda. I wanted that yeah. visual of the visual. hands going to jail. Yeah. But does yeah. did what he had to say change your verdict at all? What do you think? Because he made a good point that the merch really didn't come around until later. 
Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> that was a, a an incredible point. No, what the merch represents, obviously, <laughs> yes. is and the I think icon. he agreed with that. You know, it, although he did say that it wasn't until after his his death really was what kind of like made him that martyr and and pushed that icon. But at the same time, he was still a very popular, well known figure and. I mean, the CIA was hunting him down. It's he was he was a strong force. Again, I think the importance of, uh, you know, I of course want to send him to jail, right? <laughs> as much as I want to send Castro, right? But um, and, and I do, I do believe that you know he brought upon a lot of this. Uh, you know, his ultimate demise, I guess, you know, was brought upon by like his own decisions, I guess. Foisted by his own petard, as they say. <laughs> yeah, which is complicated because like Mike said, you know, there, what he stood for was very um, uh, I- idyllic and uh Generous is not the right word, but um, yeah. Well, his I I I think that's the whole thing with communism and that because and, it and, it's the ideals doesn't always match up with the reality of it and how he went about it. So what I like about that is that it it kind of defines that it it really specifies that it's the it's the later Che versus the younger Che. But he did make a good point about the merch not coming until after. <laughs> That's so true, but maybe it's the fashion photographer that we should Ooh, send it fashion to. industry. <laughs> oh, what? You missed it, Rebecca. Oh, my God. You missed your shot. <laughs> no, but I'll tell you what. The, the Bolivians were not unified, but you wonder if they had all had the same uniform and if that uniform had a certain <laughs> face on it, maybe they would have all lined up. It's interesting. Also, the what I thought was interesting that when he talked about the Bolivians' decision, do we let him live and become an icon or do we murder him and let him become a martyr? And it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of the, the Romanovs as well, um, mm-hmm. which was a similar similar situation, but not really because they weren't as this beloved as beloved as um, Che Guevara, but they were threats in the same way. But um, yeah, like if they had just let the Romanovs live and they would have probably not gone down in history, they probably would have just sort of like died out with right. no legacy, make, not as big of a legacy. You, also makes you wonder about, uh, the, about Jesus, about uh, the death of Jesus. Who like he kind of had a sense that he was going to be an icon if if his like if he did end up dying, which he did. So right. had he just had he just gotten older and kind of, you know, been like, Yeah, the Beatitudes were like kind of my old thing. Like I'm just sort of gonna <laughs> chill out. Yeah, now. where like, would I'm Jesus' career like a, have gone? Have gone, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also something about dying young too. Right. That uh stops you in time it's like you don't have you don't have you don't age in public mm-hmm. and therefore people just remember you know marilyn monroe is the same thing you know jfk james dean um e- even the romanovs they're, they're you know the kids were kids so there's right. something about that that 
solidifies your legacy. I agree. Right. Yeah. And they, you know, if you don't, what do they say? If you live long enough, if you're a hero and you live long enough, you become a villain, something like that. I don't I think know. That's what exactly it, what it is. I think Rebecca, you probably Winston know. Churchill. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Winston Churchill via Amanda Lund. <laughs> <laughs> I'm googling old Winston um, Churchill uh, hero. See if, that, <laughs> see if that comes up anything. Well, while you do that, I think Amanda. I, I think we can. I, I think the verdict stays. Um, I, I I think the verdict stays. What do you What do you think? I, I I stand with you, Rebecca. I think we can. Our verdict was, you know, I think it was in the realm, and I don't think that we heard anything that needed to sway us. I I think it was actually just like we were all sort of on the same page, right? Yeah. Well, another day, another learning day. <laughs> That's right. That's now, a, I have a, another great quote from Winston Churchill. I have a little update. Oh, tell us. Okay, so um, okay, so update on our our rate and review situation because I know I've put out the call to arms to up our star rating. So I just want to say that we've had some amazing reviews coming in, and we are still at four out of five stars, which is alarming. Um, so I'm also do saying that we need to keep this going, but I'll just read a review real quick. Um, and this is from Apple Podcasts, Amazeballs. This is coming in from guest five, five, six, four, seven, five stars. <laughs> I've been listening to this podcast since before the great core of 2020 and absolutely love. Since then, it has been an amazing distraction from everyday news and gloom, especially the off kilter episodes that are not super well known disasters. Keep them coming, ladies and fact checker. Chris. Um, and well, so that's nice. That was nice, right? And I also want to say that I checked out our reviews on the UK Apple Podcasts. Um, so it's funny because we have less reviews from our UK listeners, but our rating is 4.5 out of 5 stars. So just so you know, I see you guys and I'm looking at these reviews and here's one. It says, um, this comes in from Amy Flora. You have to do it in a British accent. Okay, I'll try. Let's see. She says, alarmist solidarity. As another alarm, alarmist, that's a hard word to say, alarmist, I was delighted to discover this podcast. It often descends into giggles and mild nonsense, which I always enjoy. That sounds like Mary Poppins. Giggles and mild nonsense. I like that she said it was mild nonsense. It is mild. I really feel like she's on my side. <laughs> but mild I think nonsense. Right now on... Um, on Apple Podcasts in America, we have 927 ratings. And I know because I check the stats, we have thousands of people listening in America. So I want to say, can we get to a thousand five-star ratings by next week? Wow. Are you a true patriot? That is a, a, a timeline and a challenge I hope listeners. Yes, I think we <laughs> Take can get on. there. I think we Come can on, get Alarmy. there. That's only seventy three people who need to go on Apple okay. Podcasts right now and rate and review. And I'm telling you, that's a drop in the bucket of how many people are listening to this. So I know we have seventy three heroes Aww. out there who can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five star review. 
Well, get out there, guys and gals. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> get, there's, get, there's get, some, get those finger exercises going and uh, give us that five star. You can do it. Come on. Yeah, maybe you'll even get the big clap. That's right. If, if we get to a thousand next week, we're giving our listeners the big clap. No matter Ooh, what. That's nice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Aftermath. And tune in next week. We're going to be discussing the Tulsa Massacre. Erios. Powered by ACAST. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.